Well, as you just heard Aaron read, 16 of the 24 verses of chapter 14 are spent describing military conflicts. As a matter of fact, these verses are the first time military conflict in the Middle East is referenced in Scripture. But despite the fact that two-thirds of the passage is used to describe the conflicts, the chapter isn't actually about the conflicts. The conflicts are simply the circumstances that the Lord uses or used to put the spiritual battle of, that, that Abram experienced on full display. And that battle involved two kings who were very, very different from one another. And the spiritual battle that Abram experienced is one that we experience today as well. The outline will follow is in the back of your bulletin in the normal place. We're going to look at four things tonight. I want us to see the the conflict of the nations. We can't ignore them. Uh, We want to look at the conquest of Abram. We want to see the contrast of the kings. And then I want us to see the connection to Christ. Uh, Children, you'll notice the uh, words or your words are in their normal place as well that you're listening for. So I hope you will do that. And as as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Before we continue, Uh, Father, would you give us ears to hear? Would you prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word? Grant me the grace, as always, fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you and your people tonight. Would you attend to me as I do this work that you have called me to do? And I pray these things for the sake and uh, of Christ and for the sake of your church. Amen. Well, the nations that God dispersed back in chapter 11 had settled in to their particular geographic locations and they had begun to grow in number. And due to the corruption of man's heart and, and mind and will... Conflict between those nations began. The rugged individualism of the day and the self-serving desire to be one's own authority and the self-serving desire to dominate and control other people along with, paired with the sins of lust and greed and covetousness and envy among others, had created an environment in which kingdoms would ally themselves with other kingdoms in order to wage war and conquer other kingdoms. And once kingdoms were conquered, those that were conquered would, would become servant or vassal states of those who conquered them. And here in chapter 14, we're told that four regional kings that Um, were from the east that ruled in the Mesopotamian uh, basin in and around Babylon, attacked five regional kings in the southwest around the southern portion of the Dead Sea in the Jordan Valley. Uh, This area included, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot had settled. 
These five kings in the southwest had been conquered 14 years earlier due to the bitumen and even possibly copper and manganese that was prevalent. And they had been serving one of these four other kings from the east, Kedarleomer. And he, um, well, they had served for 12 years, or they had served for 12 years when they decided that they were tired of being vassal, vassal kings or servant kingdoms. And so they, de- they determined to rebel against Kedarleomer, who didn't take it very well. He spent about a year prepping, who knows doing what, but getting ready. Because in the 14th year, he decided to come and reconquer them. And as those four kings are proceeding to the south and to the west, they expand their dominance by conquering the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, the Horites, the Amalekites, and the Amorites on the way. And once the eastern kings arrived in the valley of Sidim, they squelched the rebellion rather quickly. And in verse 11, it says that they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as the provisions, and went their way. But notice verse 12. Moses says that they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. Notice the difference from what we saw last week. If you remember in verse 12 of chapter 13, Lot had settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So apparently it hadn't taken Lot very long to slide down the slippery slope from the outskirts of Sodom into Sodom. Even if he hadn't been participating in the sin and the wickedness that was characteristic of the city, he was dwelling in the city, and that was enough for him to be taken captive by Kedarleomer. Lot had moved to the edge of Canaan, to the edge of the promised land, to the furthest possible place, straddling the line between being in the land in which God had said he would dwell being outside of the land. To use language from our study of Leviticus, he had moved and was straddling the line between being inside the camp and outside the camp. And unfortunately, he continued to slip all the way into bondage. Brothers and sisters, despite what many people will say today, there are such things as slippery slopes. Decisions we make can appear innocuous, or at least we talk ourselves into believing they're innocuous. We can make decisions on a daily basis that push limits and can cause us to straddle lines that, well, lines spiritually speaking. And we can talk ourselves into believing that we can get as close as we possibly can to those lines without going over them. We can talk ourselves into thinking that we can keep our small besetting sins alive and that we can entertain temptations and we can keep company with the enemy rather than mortifying our sin 
fleeing temptation, and resisting our enemy. We can talk ourselves into believing that we can closely associate ourselves with evil and sin and wickedness without participating in or falling into that same sin or that same evil or wickedness ourselves. The problem is we are not as strong as we think we are. We're not as strong as we wish we were. And you add to that that the world, what the world offers is not as it appears. What the world promises and what it delivers is vastly different. And there's always a price to pay. And as believers, we're not immune to bondage. Chapters 1 and 3 of, or paragraphs 1 and 3 of chapter 17 of our confession are worth repeating this week. They whom God has accepted in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. However, they may through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their perseverance fall into grievous sins. And for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit. Come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts. Have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded. Hurt and scandalize others. And bring temporal judgment upon themselves. Brothers and sisters, we shouldn't want to push, or we we don't want to be like Lot and push the limits and flirt with and straddle lines between holiness and sin. And then, in the words of Jude, be snatched out of the fire and saved. Rather, we should want to refuse to push limits. To stay as far away from the lines as we can. And again, in the words of Jude, keep ourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That should be our goal. Well, in the remaining verses of the chapter, we see that the original conquering and and the rebelling and then the reconquering that led to Lot's captivity were all the context, again, all context for for the, what the Lord had purposed to do in the life of Abram. In other words, everything that had gone on up to that point was a part of God's providential plan. And that providential plan, He was using the, the conflict, within that providential plan, He was using the conflict among the various nations to set the stage for Abram to do what he did not do in Egypt. In verse 13, Moses tells us that someone from the conquered nations happened to escape and that someone ran to Abram. And interestingly, Abram is described as the Hebrew living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Anir, who were allies of Abram. In other words, we're reminded again by Moses that Abram wasn't from around there. And he continued to be a stranger in the land. He continued to wander. And his residence there was only temporary. 
And to live there, he actually had to ally himself with others that were there. And those alliances worked to his benefit in a very significant way. Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went and pursued as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So although he was undermanned and he decided to pursue and to attack and he actually defeated the nations that had just run, run roughshod over ten other larger nations. And he did, did it simply to save his nephew. A far cry from how he treated Sarai, was it not? But he didn't do it alone, he did it with the help of the Lord. Just as Gideon would do later. I love how Ligon Duncan put it, he said, Abram's bravery reveals something of his character to us. If we were disappointed with Abram in Genesis 12, he says we're a little bit proud of Abram here in Genesis 14. After all, his nephew had taken the better land. Abram had absolutely nothing to lose by ignoring the circumstances and saying to himself, well, I mean, he chose first. I didn't get him into this fix. I told you so, Lot. But Abram immediately sprung into action to rescue his foolish relative. If I can use the words of Jude again, Abram snatched Lot out of the fire. Which, by the way, he will do again literally in chapter 19, as we'll see in a few weeks. He did more than just put a gentle arm around Lot and, and encourage him. He, he had to forcibly pull him away. He had to defeat other nations militarily to win his freedom. And beloved, I think it's safe to say that there are those that you and I know who have jumped into ungodly lifestyles with both feet. There are those who aren't simply straddling fences and experimenting, but are all in, in terms of ungodly patterns, and ungodly lifestyles, and unconfessed sin. The stain and the odor of sin is all over them. And we must cautiously, carefully, but firmly reach out to them without being pulled into what it is they're involved in. And we must be willing to go to great lengths to help them, great lengths to help one another and save one another from the throes of sin. Because again, we're not as strong as we think we are. We're not as strong as we wish we were. And we must be ready for our assistance to be rejected and even mocked and ridiculed. And I need to also say this at this point. Some of you may be thinking, well, I understand why God would use Abram to save Lot. But why would God use Abram to save Sodom and Gomorrah from those nations he was, who he was ob obviously using to judge them? 
It, it doesn't quite make sense. But let me simply answer with the words of Calvin, who said, God had destined the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah when their neighbors were ruined and destroyed to a still more severe judgment because they themselves were the worst of all. He therefore raised up his servant Abram after they had been admonished by a chastisement sufficiently severe to deliver them in order that they might be rendered the more inexcusable. You see, as, as we've said before, God's ways are not our ways. Right? His thoughts are not our thoughts. And, but we do know that His judgment is sure. He will not tarry, but will judge rightly and justly according to His divine purposes and in His perfect time. And that judgment is just as sure as it is just. Which again, we will see in a few weeks in chapter 19. Well, after Abram's return, Moses said two kings came out to meet Abram. One was Bera, the king of Sodom, and the other was Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And it's the encounter. This is, this is the point. Okay? This, this encounter between these two kings is what created the spiritual battle within Abram. Very little is said about Bera, the king of Sodom, but based on what we know about Sodom, based upon the sin and wickedness of the, of the people, and based upon the offer that he's going to make Abram that we're going to see in just a minute, we have a pretty good idea of the man and king that Bera is. Not a lot of confusion. But Melchizedek is another story altogether. He's a very, if you remember from our study of Hebrews, Melchizedek is a very, very mysterious character because he drops into the chapter out of nowhere. And then at the, ad, at the end of the chapter, he disappears, never to be seen or heard from again. But despite the mystery, we know a little bit more about him because of what's explained here in Genesis 14, as well as Hebrews 7 that Aaron read earlier. And I just want to read a few of those verses just to remind ourselves of, of what the writer said. He, he, he wrote this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything and to him. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. So here's what we know based upon Genesis and Hebrews. Very quickly. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He is king of Salem or Jerusalem. And that means he's king of peace. He wasn't simply a king. He was also a priest. And he was a priest of El Elyon, which refers to the universal nature of God and that God was, in fact, the creator, possessor, and sustainer of heaven and earth. And there's no uh, genealogical record for him. That means we don't know who his mother was, we don't know who his father was, uh, we don't know when he was born, and we don't know when he died. Now, when, when this mysterious character comes out and meets Abram, Moses said he brought bread and wine. 
This was, in the words of Calvin, a way of refreshing a wearied and famished army with royal liberality. I love that statement. But he not only offered refreshment for Abram spiritually, he not only nourished, um, nourished him physically, but he also offered refreshment to Abram spiritually speaking. And he did so by, by blessing him. Speaking a blessing over him and not only blessing him, but blessing the Lord and praising the Lord who had who they both served because the Lord had delivered Abram's enemies into his hands. And in so doing, again, in the words of Calvin, Melchizedek confirmed and ratified the grace of the divine vocation of holy Abram. In other words, it was another reminder Right? Abram's being reminded again and again by the Lord of who he is and what he's promised. And notice how Abram responded. He gave him a tenth of everything. Even though Abram had just earned the right through his defeat of the Babylonian, uh, Babylonian armies to be served by everyone and ev- anyone and everyone. He paid a tithe to Melchizedek, acknowledging that he who was the father of many or would be the father of many nations and who would be the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He was in subjection not only to Melchizedek, but to the God whom they served. They both served. It was an offering that no doubt honored Melchizedek. It honored him as a royal priest of the Most High God, but it, but it was also an offering of first fruits. It was an offering to God, giving, giving him a portion of that which he had received in, in the spoils of war. And by doing so, he was acknowledging and thanking God for his provision. And it was also reflecting Abram's resting in the promises of God as well as his anticipation of their fulfillment. Now, Bera's offer is completely different. Rather than offer refreshment and a blessing, Bera offers Abram a deal as if he's in a position to make a deal. Verse 21 says, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But the truth of the matter is that Abram had just secured Bera's freedom. Abram had just restored his kingdom. And yet Bera is acting like he still is in charge. He acted as if he was the sovereign and Abram was the servant by presenting Abram this deal that he apparently couldn't refuse. But a deal he had no right to offer. Because the reality was the the people and the possessions and the provisions were no longer his. Everything was Abram's. Abram and Abram alone had the right to do with the spoils of war what he wanted to do. But Abram also knew that he, he knew the kind of man that Bera was. And if he kept anything... For himself, it was going to come back and haunt him. Look at verse 
22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing. But what the young men have eaten, young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, let Anir, Eschol, and Memory take their share. Right? Abram didn't want Bera or anyone else, for that matter, to be able to say that anyone other than God was responsible for his riches and status. In light of Bera's evil and wickedness, and the evil and wickedness of Sodom, Abram didn't want anyone, particularly them. To receive the glory or the praise for the victory that he had experienced or the blessings that were a part of the victory. Abram didn't want to be associated with anything about them because he didn't want anyone to bring reproach upon the Lord. And at the same time, Abram also knew that the possessions that he had gained paled. In comparison to the promises that God had made to him. He knew that what Bera could offer and what Sodom could provide fell so woefully short of what the Lord had promised to provide and that he would eventually receive. So Abram let Bera know that he had already made a deal. Not, not only did he not have the right to make a deal, but he, Abram himself had already made a deal. He'd already lifted his hands to the Lord. He let Bera know that despite the fact that it all rightfully belonged to him, because he had defeated Kedaleom, that he was committed to not keeping a stitch. He wouldn't keep anything other than what those who had helped him needed. And this, by the way, carries us back to the promise in chapter 12. Right? They had been a blessing to him. And God had promised that those who had been a blessing to him, he would be a blessing in return. Other than that, Barak could have it all. Take it all. Because Abraham said, I'm committed to the Lord. I'm committed to the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. You don't have anything that I need. Because he possesses it all. Brothers and sisters, there are a few things we need to consider or take away from this third point. First, we need to recognize that we're in, a, we're in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle. And God alone is the source of our spiritual victories. Listen to these words of Alan Ross. He said, God gives the victory to his faithful servants. There is no army, no weaponry, and no surprise night attack that can defeat spiritual wickedness, whether powerful invaders or spirit forces. The people of God must champion righteousness in the way that God has instructed them to do so, which today requires spiritual weapons. 
The church cannot defeat spiritual wickedness by overthrowing corrupt governments or legislating better laws and ordinances. The conflict is far greater than such efforts and calls for divine power for the victory. He concludes by saying this, God will give his people victory over the world as they faithfully obey his word and contend for his cause. Secondly, we need to remember that God is the source of our blessings. So it would be good for us to to take a minute and assess how prosperous we really are. We should consider how comfortable we are. We need to contemplate our successes. We need to think about our joys and the joys of our lives. As the, as the old, forgive me for this, this, I go back to my Baptist days here, but as the old hymn says, we need to count our many blessings. Name them one by one. Count our many blessings and see what God has done. Because He's the source of our prosperity. He's the source of our comfort. He's the source of our successes. He's the source of our joys. And thirdly, we need to exercise care. And what I mean is we need to exercise care because the world offers us things that are not the world's to give us. And those things that the world offers pales or pale in comparison to what the Lord has promised to give us. Which, we, which means we also need to be able to discern the character and the motives of the givers in our lives and, and the nature of the gifts we receive. We need to pray for discernment. The discernment we need to determine when something is offered by the Lord and when it's offered by the world. We need to ask our, our, ourselves regular questions of what has the Lord promised? What has the world promised? And what is the difference between the two? We need to discern whether what we're being offered will bring reproach upon the Lord or not. And whether the giver is going to steal the glory that only He is due. Because there are people who would like nothing better than to bring reproach upon the Lord. And steal the glory that is due His name and His name alone. Again, listen to these words from Alan Ross. He says, The realization that both victory over the world and the promised blessings come from God alone will enable us to discern the danger of accepting worldly benefits and to wait for the untarnished blessings. And that, of course, brings us to our last point, which is the connection to Christ. The question that people have asked over time and tried to answer is, who is this Melchizedek? Some will say he is the pre-incarnate Christ. Others will say he's Shem. Calvin simply says this, this Melchizedek, whoever he was, is presented before us without any origin as if he dropped from the clouds. And he was okay with that. And the writer of Hebrews was okay with that. So guess what? So am I. I think I'm keeping pretty good company. But that leads to another question. 
Why would God use such a mysterious character in the midst of this story? Why drop him in, into the story from the clouds? And why would the writer of Hebrews be inspired to use Melchizedek in his letter to those Jews who are being pressured and even persecuted for their faith? Why would he use Melchizedek for those who are struggling spiritually and, and doubting, their assur- or doubting their faith and struggling with assurance? Why would he use him as an example for those who are being tempted to fall back into their old way of life and their empty religion? And the answer is because this mysterious character of Melchizedek, you will remember from our study of, of Hebrews, he points us to Jesus. He points us to the Lord Jesus. Listen again to the author of Hebrews. We're going to go back to chapter 6, the last two verses there. He says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so to understand what he's saying, and we're not going to... I'm going to brush through this because we've gone into great detail about this prior to tonight. But we need to remember, again, who Melchizedek was to see how he points to Jesus. Remember, Melchizedek, his name was king of righteousness. It meant king of righteousness, and he was the king of Salem, which meant he was a king of peace. Well, John and Paul both called Jesus the righteous. Paul calls Jesus our peace. But we know that righteousness and peace weren't just titles that he possessed. He was and is inherently and intrinsically righteous and peaceful. Right? He was and is the source and essence and sum of all righteousness and peace. He's also the one and only who is able to mediate and bestow righteousness and peace. And in that order... Peace only comes after and cannot come apart from righteousness. And so we're at peace. um, We have peace from God because we're at peace with God. And we're only at peace with God because we have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ and have been declared righteous and therefore are no longer enemies but are sons and daughters of His. You'll remember that Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. A priest of the Most High God. And we know from our study of Luke that Jesus is the eternal Son who took on flesh and was the King of kings and Lord of lords. He was and is the Messiah. He is the descendant of David who was the first to serve on the throne of Melchizedek. His rule and reign as king is universal. It's universal in a general sense, but it's also over everything, but he's also, he also rules in a specific sense over his people. And his rule and reign is perpetual and eternal. It never ends. And we know from our study of Leviticus and Hebrews that Jesus is a better high priest. He is the best high priest. He far and away is superior to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood who were inferior to him. Then, of course, Melchizedek had no genealogical record. 
And we know, of course, that Jesus wasn't a priest because of his genealogical lineage. He was from the tribe of Judah and not Aaron. That means his priesthood is internal and inherent, not external or inherited. His priesthood is, again, perpetual and eternal. And brothers and sisters, I believe Abram submitted himself to Melchizedek, not only due to his faith in the creator and possessor of heaven and earth, but I believe Abraham, or Abram, excuse me, not there yet, knew Melchizedek pointed to someone greater. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, Abram rejoiced that he would see my day and saw it was and saw it and was glad. Don't know how, but I believe he did. He was looking forward in faith to the seed in and through whom the promises are all yes and amen. That same seed would be the one to whom Melchizedek pointed. The royal priest. The royal priest who would rule and reign in righteousness and peace and would assure, excuse me, secure and bestow righteousness and peace to all those who look to him in faith. Beloved, we need to look to the same one to whom Abram looked. It has not changed. Abram wasn't looking at one and we need to look at someone else. We're looking to the same Savior. We need to look to Jesus in faith. Because as Paul wrote, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abram, the man of faith. We possess the same faith. The faith is in the same one. He looked forward. Looking back. We're also looking ahead. May that be so. And may, and may the Lord, may, may the Lord refresh us this evening. His wearied and famished people who are in the midst of a battle in this world. And may He do so with royal liberality in this meal of bread and wine that He has lavishly prepared for us and we are about to share together. Let's pray. Father, by Your Spirit...